reading from Peter's first letter to the early church, chapter four. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. One of the things that I know for sure is that for everybody in this room, uh, the last few years have been like this sea change. Everything in our world seems to be up for grabs. And I'm not just talking about since the pandemic. Even before the pandemic, uh, there was this flood that came at us and nobody asked for it. Nobody wanted it, at least nobody that I know. Uh, it starts with this feeling that we're more divided than we've ever been. It feels like there's confusion everywhere around. And then the confusion gets doubled because people begin to talk about you can't really know what truth is anymore. And then there's this feeling of anguish and disgust. And then the pandemic comes and you isolate everybody and it begins to feel anxious to everyone. Everywhere you go, you feel like there's anxiety everywhere. And one thing that has really happened to people that doesn't get certainly talked about a lot in the news that most people listen to is the way people have changed in the way they interact with their spiritual life, with what's going on inside of them. And many people believe, and I'm not among these, I'll just say this up front, but even many people probably in this room believe that it's harder to follow Jesus in the United States than it's ever been. The reason I don't believe that is because I can't tell you for sure that there were more committed Christians when I was a little boy. I know that there were people that would go uh, to the KKK uh, hut on Friday night and be elders of the church that my mom and dad attended on Sunday. I know there were people that went to the juke joint that my band was playing at on Saturday night and came to church on Sunday morning. I can't say for sure that there were more committed Christians at that time, but I know for sure there was more positive respect for Christianity and a more sort of cultural feeling that if you want to be a good person, you probably ought to go to church. I recently have been reading some uh, sociological stuff about what's happening with the spiritual life of people in our country because it's been my life for the last 40-something years, and it's just been regular that when those reports come out, uh, I sort of pour over them. And one part of it was really not very surprising to me, and the other part was a little bit surprising. The unsurprising part to me was when they told me that still in the state of Georgia, 60% of people in the state of Georgia uh, say that they are, are Christians. Now, I know for sure a lot of those people are liars. The reason I know that they're liars is I've been part of the state of Georgia for, uh, since 1984, and I know for sure that in this county now nor in this state, 60% of the people in this state have never gone to church, which is a part of what it means to follow Jesus, because there aren't enough seats in this state for 60% of those people to show up and find a place to sit. I know for sure in this county right now, that would mean we'd need 85 to 90,000 seats in churches in this county. We ain't close to that. 
So sociologists look at that and they know that when most people are asked on surveys, are you Christian, what they mean is, yeah, they say, because I ain't Muslim, I ain't Buddhist, I ain't any of those other things I can't even name, and I do sort of believe in God. Now, what the sociologists do with that is they divide it then into say, well, really what's going on is there's a third of those 60% of people, uh, there's a third of them are what we're going to call cultural Christians, which is I, what I just said to you. If they're asked by somebody, do you believe in Jesus, they say yes. It has almost no impact on their life. They believe, but it doesn't impact them in any way. Another third of them are what they would call congregational Christians. These are the people that if you ask them, hey, do you go to church anywhere? They say to you they do, and they tell you the name of the local church, which is one of the, my favorite things for people to do to me because then I always say to them, oh, what's your pastor's name? I can't remember. It turns out they can't either. <laughs> they don't know. And I know that most of the churches in this state are under 100 people, and if it's them and their pastor, they got to know. Most of them are small churches, and, and they don't know. But then there are a third that even sociologists would say in our country are what would be called convictional Christians. And convictional Christians are people who say they have a personal relationship with Jesus, but not like when they just get ready to die. They have a personal relationship with Jesus that affects them. It becomes the frame through which they view life. They do it imperfectly. They say they try to follow him, and they don't do it perfectly. They would be the first to admit this. But at the core of their identity is they follow Jesus. Their faith is the hub on which all the spokes of their life connect. So they look at the politics of this world, and they look at their finances, and they look at their relationships, and they look at their sexuality, and they look at everything through the lens of what would Jesus say about that. They do not look at Jesus through the lens of their life. They don't look and say, this is the way I feel, so therefore Jesus must agree with me. But what's happened in the last few years, with all that I talked about in the beginning, is that those first third cultural Christians, they've largely lost their connection to Jesus altogether. And now sociologists are finding that when you ask them what's more important to them, United States or Jesus, politics always wins. The United States is way higher priority to those cultural Christians than it was before. And they find their identity in what political party they are a part of. And they found most of their identity in that in the last few years when we've had those kind of wars. The second third of congregational Christians found that during the pandemic, watching online didn't do it for them. And then when they stopped watching online, they realized, I don't feel like I'm missing nothing. I don't think it really mattered that much to me. I don't think it ma matters that much whether I go or I'm involved, and Jesus has got me covered when I get to death because that's what everybody told me. And because of that, in our world, as what that's faded away, people like a lot of us feel like the temperature of Christianity in our country has cooled. I was telling my small group about this uh, where I heard these stats for the first time, and the guy who was leading the seminar told the pastors in that group that pastors are now less trusted in our society than used car salesmen. That people trust 
use the guy selling the car that they don't even know if it's a good car less than they trust people like me. Now, one of the guys in my group who likes to take everything I say and find out whether I'm true or not, which is a good thing or not, he went and then found an article that he sent to me and said, you're wrong. It's not they trust you less than used car salesmen. It's worse than that. There's only one group in the United States they trust less than they trust pastors. Want to guess what it is? Politicians. So now that I know most of you don't trust me, hi, my name is Ed, and uh, I am not running for office, so I'm above that. So if you're new here today, I'm so glad you came, and what I'm hoping is you'll hang out long enough that you get to know us, and you get to understand that this is a community where we're trying to build a group of people who trust deeply in Jesus. And we encourage each other to follow Jesus. And that Jesus is at the core of what we do. And so for the last few weeks, since the beginning of the summer, we've been learning from one of Jesus' closest friends, a guy named Peter, in a letter that he wrote to a group of people who are in a culture that the culture hasn't just cooled to them. It's become openly hostile. And before you begin to think that's true of us, it is not. It's not true in our culture. In their culture, there were no cultural Christians or congregational Christians because when you might get killed for going to church, if you show up, you're convicted. You only show up if you're convicted. You only come if you deeply believe it. So we've been learning is, is that even though our hope often feels like it's shaky in the world, The framework of our lives is our hope is secure because Jesus is king. And so we can live a life of confidence no matter what changes in our world, no matter what personal suffering we're going through, no matter what personal tragedies come at us. In fact, Peter makes clear that in a culture where everything begins to turn against you, the church has this incredible opportunity in the verses we're going to look at today. I'll just say to you, personally, I am thrilled to be a part of a church at a time like this. I think our church is perfectly poised at a time like this to have an impact in our culture. Basically, because because for the whole time we've been a church for 33 years, we have not gotten caught up with a lot of churches in our culture of, have been mainly fighting against people who don't go to church. If you're new around here, you will never find us saying that the problem in the world is out there somewhere. The biggest problem in the world is me and the sin that's in me and the sin that's in you. And if I want to make a difference in the world, I must allow Jesus to change me so I can begin to have an impact in the world. You will never hear us demand that people outside of the church begin to live up to the standards of Jesus because they never agreed to live to those standards. We won't be passing out voting guides to anybody saying that you ought to ask the government to pass Jesus standards for sexuality or marriage or relationships or the less. It shouldn't be that all that shocking to us in our country that when you form a group of Christians that you call the moral majority that the other people who aren't included don't enjoy being called the immoral minority and so they turn against us and contrary to what many people my age tend to think the younger generation in our country aren't offended by Jesus the people I meet who are 20 years old to 40 years old They aren't offended that Jesus 
claims to be king or his supernatural power. Their problem is they don't choose to follow him because they look at the Christians they know, which are often people in their family, and they believe that they, the way they have aligned themselves with political powers in this country that they know who Jesus would oppose, they don't think you believe in Jesus. Because you've aligned yourself with people you, they know Jesus would stand against, they don't think they can have much to do with you. I'm glad to be a part of a community of Jesus followers where we say we're not going to fight that war. Instead, we will do what the persecuted Christians who really face pressure, what Jesus said in this. We will live as God's chosen people, chosen by King Jesus to stand in our culture as priests, which means we represent God to people in our culture, and we represent our culture to God. We say to people in our culture, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we pray for our culture before God. We stand as priests, a nation set apart within a nation. We're God's possession, so we make a decision to live our lives in such a way that the praises of Jesus might flow from our lives. And so that this will not be a community where we get caught or where you find the truth taught the Bible just when it's popular. We are sold out to King Jesus, and we trust the truth that's taught in the Bible. Instead, our goal will always be to follow him with humble conviction. There's power, not through power plays, but through an unwavering commitment to King Jesus and the Word of God and an uncompromising love for every person we meet. We won't panic when we hear people telling us that the world, that all hell is breaking loose. Instead, we will live with confidence knowing that King Jesus said that when the church lives the way the church would, should live, hell will shake in front of the church. But Peter knows we have to be prepared when pressure comes. No one knew better than Peter what it was like to be under pressure and unprepared. It was Peter who promised Jesus that he would never deny him. But when the pressure came, Peter fell short. So Peter wants this group of Christians same attitude he had and be ready to suffer too. In other words, right now, we need to prepare our hearts and minds to respond to suffering with the attitude of Christ, which for sure means that we don't trade insult for insult. It means that we don't go on a rant to prove some political point. Every name in the book at him, and he responded with humility. When we receive insults, we trade back prayers of blessing and the hope that it will be God kindness that will lead our accusers to repentance. It does not mean that you will always be happy and feel good about your circumstances, which conflicts with so many people's idea that if I do the right thing, treat people well, say my prayers, then God will do his job and make sure that I get treated well, that nothing bad happens to me, that I'm happy and healthy and it's all good. But the biggest problem with this teaching it's reality. And when this teaching runs into reality, you start to feel like God is not keeping up his end of the bargain. But Peter is writing to a group of people who have had the reality of persecution burst their bubble. Change were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Peter is saying this kind of suffering isn't just when it feels unexpected. You end up thinking, if only I'd been prepared for this, maybe it would have been different. 
So Peter doesn't want that to happen. He doesn't want them to be where this world isn't your home. It isn't where you find any hope. So imagine someone told you that in six months you're going to lose your job. For a few years, it's going to be a real struggle for you. You're going to have your home foreclosed upon, lose your car, the bill. Then you're going to be contacted by a lawyer who tells you that a wealthy relative has left you an inheritance of $10 million. Wouldn't that change your experience in six months when you do? Which doesn't mean giddy happiness. It means that even as you grieve the loss, you have this quiet confidence that I'm okay and everything is going to be okay. That's not going to be any different. The nights are still going to feel cold, but you know what's coming. This is going to be difficult. There's going to be those challenges. It's not going to be easy. But we have this inheritance of spirit with confidence because we aren't surprised by it. That's what Peter is saying to present King Jesus and his kingdom. So be prepared. Verse 14, Peter continues to prepare us and the Christians in that day. He says, if you're insulted because you bear the name of Jesus, you're blessed. For the glorious Spirit of God rests on you. A person without knowing it has prayed a prayer of blessing over you. Do you see if you could begin to see it that way? That it might change the way you'd react? So that when you're insulted, when you're mocked, when... When hard things come your way because you have faith in Christ, when you're vilified, when you're marginalized, when people begin to turn on you, there's this tendency, and believe me, I have plenty of it in me to pridefully want to give back as good as I've gotten. But their insult, their marginalization, their pushing away, their insult, it's just a, it's a prayer of blessing on me. It's God being with me in my life, knowing that I'm standing for what's right. Every insult carries with it the blessing of God. But many people might ask, and in fact, people often do. So if God's just going to protect us, and if the kingdom of God's really going to come, and if we're already safe wherever Jesus is, if the kingdom wins, and we know that that's going to be the end of all things, then why didn't God just get on with it? Well, believe it or not, God doesn't consult me on his reasons. He doesn't, he doesn't, I don't know all the reasons, but I know this one pretty clear of why God waits because Peter tells us. And this one I am so thankful for. God wants everybody, everybody to come to know him. And so he's patient and he waits. And I, for one, am thankful 40 years ago that when I was off track, God decided to wait. And he did not send the kingdom at that moment to come in its fullness. Instead, he was waiting on me and for many of you who were other places at that time. God has called us, those of us who are light, to wait with him and to be the light that shines in the darkness. So I'll ask you the question that you already know the answer to. Does light shine brighter in the daylight or in the darkness? In the darkness is what you say, but I, I always want to say to preachers when they say that, the light's the same all the time. <laughs> the light is never brighter. It's just the, able to be seen better in the dark. And the benefit for people like me and you, maybe a church full of just dim bulbs, is that when it gets really, really, really dark, even we might shine. 
And even if my light's not all that great and my faith isn't strong, if I can stand strong when it gets really dark, I might be able to be seen as a light for Jesus. And when we're suffering, but we stand in our faith, our light shines really bright. I have such respect for a man named Russell Moore, who I only barely knew his name about six years ago, but I have great respect for him because over the last six years, the largest Protestant denomination in our country, which he was a major player in, has sort of ostracized him and kicked him out for his stand against their aligning themselves with political power in our country. He wrote an article a few years ago stating that he thought the church in the U.S. had to be ready to welcome refugees. And I know how some of you feel about immigration, so he's not talking about physical refugees coming from other countries. He's specifically talking about in this article about receiving refugees from the sexual revolution that the baby boomers started in the 1960s in this country and has been continuing until this time. To make it short... I'll let you hear what he's saying. He's saying, hey, as people get more and more of what they have wanted for so long in our country, where what we want is to be free, where what we want is to live the way we want, how we want, no matter what, no matter what goes on, it will create hurt. And eventually, people who are hurt become like refugees. They, they look at a group of people who thought, like many of us who can fully identify with this, Refugees look like people that were like us that thought, man, if I could just have what I wanted when I wanted, I don't think the, the consequences that everybody said would come will come to me. And then when you get it and you get far enough in it and you get, get to a place, you go, oh, what I wanted? This isn't what I wanted. This isn't what I thought it would be. Because what happens is when you stand against what God has already told you, inevitably there are consequences. And there's a pain in our culture, in our whole culture, of doing what we wanted, when we wanted, how we wanted, and thinking that none of it mattered. And I don't think God cares about this anyway, in spite of how clearly he's spoken about it. I'll just do these things my way, and it'll work out okay. And it does. For a short time. And then it compounds. And eventually, it leaves you feeling empty and disillusioned. And then there's weight that begins to come. And so Dr. Moore says, if the church will be the people of God, living as aliens and strangers in a land that thinks everything should be allowed, in spite of being criticized, we will be positioned to receive the coming refugees from our over-sexualized culture. I might add, the same is inevitably going to be true for the people who thought that the United States was more important than Jesus. That too will be found out to be just as empty as every hope you put above him. That too will be found out to be lost, and eventually there will be refugees from that as well. Dr. Moore adds, There are only two kind of churches that will be welcoming to these kind of refugees. And the first one, and the only, this one, won't have any refugees come to it because they're the church that sold out the truth of God for to be conveniently acceptable by the culture. 
They can't receive any refugees because they're not saying anything that the rest of the culture wasn't already saying to them. And when they look at a church like that, they'll go, I already tried what you're saying and you're wrong. But he says the other church that won't have anything to say to the refugees is the one who've been screaming at them in rage the whole time they've been living that way. Refugees will never turn to them because you don't run toward a group that is constantly throwing stones at you. Not too long ago, I was talking with a pastor I know who used to be on the East Coast with us, and he, he took a job out West because he, well, I don't know why, honestly, but he went out West. <laughs> and I asked him, I said, you know, you've been there five years now. What's the difference between being out there? Is it more difficult out there? Because all the stuff we hear out here is how much more difficult it is in the West. And he says, well, it is different, he said, but... Out here, nobody in our church ever thinks that people automatically are going to agree with them. They know that they're going to have to win a hearing. That people are going to have to wait to find out whether they can accept the fact from these people or not. But where you live, he said, people already think everybody sort of agrees with them. He said, but where I am, I say to our church all the time, we live right in the middle of the battlefield. Where divorce and addiction and serial relationships and the breakdown of those have run their course and people are hurting. He says the way our church enters into the battlefield is never as combative. I said, we go onto the battlefield as medics. And when you go onto the battlefield not as a combatant, but you go as medics, suddenly the people that are hurting are willing to listen to you because they get it. What they thought they really wanted, it turns out it wasn't what they wanted. It's empty, and it left them injured. And so Peter says to this church, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring, better look out for the enemy. And in our country, where a lot of Christians you know are telling you the enemy has a name like Biden or Trump, or stands for something that you get, I tell you right now, that is a lie. People are never our enemy. We do not war against flesh and blood. Those, all the people who disagree with us, all the people who have values different than ours, those are not enemies. Those are people we've been called to love. And so we go out prepared. And the main preparation with the devil is you don't get confused who your enemy is. Your real enemy is not the family member who makes fun of you for your faith or the person down the street that has a different faith for you or the person that lives differently than you or your your young grandchild or your daughter or your son who does not understand your faith. They are not your co-worker who makes little jabs at you, who points out to you. Your enemy is not those people. Those are people God has called you to love. We can never get confused on this. And so Peter challenges the church to be prepared at these things. And then he challenges them to be prayerful in our experience of persecution. When it comes, it should cause us to lean in in dependence on God. And so he ends, and we'll talk about this more. Verse 7, he says, he says, these people who are really suffering, here's what he says to them. Hey, listen, 
Give all your worries and cares to God. All the things that you're anxious about, all the pressure when it comes, all your worries and concerns, give that to God. Maybe your version says, or maybe the way you have is the way I memorized it. Cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Let me remind you of this. Some of you are here this morning, and you haven't really been able to hear what I've been saying because personally you're, ex you're suffering. You're experiencing hardship or, or loss, and it's deep in you. And you've tried to do everything you can. So I say to you, cast all your cares on God because He cares for you. You won't forget that, will you? That's what He, that's he, what he wants you to know. And this is why it's so important that he puts us together in the church. It's why we say around here, and we remind you, Christianity, unlike other spiritual ways of life, Christianity is not a private, personal thing. We were meant to be together, to stand together, to encourage each other when one is down, that we help each other, which is why we say to you and invite you, if you're new around here, hey, we would love to have you in our community. Would you go to the next steps and let us talk to you? Would you consider doing that today? But before we end, we want to see if we can give you a little glimpse of what life and community is like. So Steve's going to come and lead us in that time.